Okay, so we're here at Loughborough University uh, for the first of the Catapult High Performance Practitioner interviews. So there'll be a number of these taking place over the next few months. And I'm delighted that we've got uh, Paul Bryce with us, who is the consultant biomechanist with UK Athletics. So welcome, Paul. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Um, so Paul's area of expertise is in sports bi uh, biomechanics. And I think probably a really useful opener for us would be if you could just give us a little bit of an overview as to exactly what uh, sports biomechanics actually is. It's a good question. I should know the answer. Uh, I guess biomechanics is um, it's one of the branches of uh, sports science. So you've obviously got your physiology, biomechanics and, uh, and psychology. Biomechanics in itself fundamentally is about human movement and trying to provide information and, and analysis on human movement. So in the track and field context, a context that I currently work in, it's um, mainly around high-speed video motion movement. Um, but also do a lot more stuff with force, kinetics, and pretty much EMG really isn't, it isn't something that we go into in, in track and field. But there's three main areas, so kinetics, kinematics, and EMG. So kinetics being the, the video side of things? Kinematics is more the, the, the video, so the motion, how the body moves, joint angles, joint speeds, range of motion, uh, limb velocities, that sort of centre of mass profiles, that's more kinematics. A lot of that is generated from high-speed video, um, obviously now the availability of high-speed video is a lot more commercially available on your iPhone um, and different other simple camera systems that you can buy. So, yeah. Okay, so y you mentioned that biomechanics is sort of one strand of the sports sciences um, and it seems to be one that's relatively underrepresented by number uh, globally. Uh, what was it about biomechanics that attracted you into that as a discipline? As a, uh, I think fundamentally for me it's because I didn't really understand physiology, if I'm honest, and, and <laughs> psychology didn't really resonate with me either. So for whatever reason, going back, um, thinking about my undergraduate degree, I think biomechanics just, just sat with me, just I understood it, kind of made sense to me. Didn't have to work too hard to understand the, the, the sort of laws. Um, and it was also how my brain worked. I'm, I, I enjoy maths, and, and so that sat with me quite nicely. Um, so yeah, biomechanics was always a passion, and even in sort of uh, undergraduate degree and then obviously into my PhD, it was always an area that I enjoyed, but I was very keen that I'd, I enjoyed the academic side of it, the, you know, the academic rigour of, of um, biomechanics, but I was also very interested in the, the application of biomechanics. Um, and that's obviously where, where I find myself today, working, um, working predominantly in um, track and field, but also consulting into other professional sports as well. But yeah, it was almost that, um, the ability to use that information and, and interacting with a coach and an athlete to try and make them better. Um, I enjoyed the sort of unique, the unique puzzles of working with athletes. Um, there's no real, obviously there's a right and wrong answer, but how you get there, sometimes you have to be a bit more creative. Um, and also the academic side, I guess for me, um, the perceptions of some of the academics in biomechanics, you know, you've got this big sort of crazy head, sort of geeky, numbers, number crunching person who's got a white lab coat who sits and crunches numbers. And I'm, I'm sure that was my perception when I first started in the sport, but hopefully I've, trying to move the way. So yes, understand the, the, the sort of premise of good scientific rigour in what I do. Um, but I'm a big believer that the, my lab as a biomechanics lab is the track. So if that's the case then, and you've got your, I suppose, your traditional biomechanists who, you know, the academic biomechanists who will work in the laboratory, and you're saying that you, you spend most of your time working in the field. Do you actually compromise on some of, the, I suppose, the fundamental principles in order to uh, carry out the job the way that you do? I think some of it, it's always a balance, isn't it? You've, uh, like coaches and athletes will always cry out for, for immediacy of information. So you've got to use the appropriate technology to inform that coaching decision, essentially. Um, and so there's certain bits of equipment which you can use in, a, in an applied setting that um, 
that yes, you do, you do have to, but what I always tend to do is understand the assumptions of the equipment, understand what the equipment's given you, how that, how that number's generated, the methodology behind that, and, and the limitations of the, the information coming out. So it is a balance, and sometimes you do have to compromise turning the data around quicker or giving that coach information more immediately. Um, and yes, you'd like to do a centre of mass full digitisation profile, but you know the reality is that takes you an hour to two hours, and the coach wants that information within two or three seconds of the of the athlete doing the whatever event or the action is. So, yeah, so it's a it's a juggling act for me, and it's one you've got a um, you've got to be mindful of. So you can't just give out numbers for numbers' sake. You've got to have, they've got to be meaningful. They've got to be reliable, accurate, um, but you've also got to know where they've come from. I think that's a big thing that you've you've got to. Okay. So that's, uh, that's kind of the, the position that you've arrived at with a lot of years' experience. So if I, if I can just wind the clock back a little bit, Pem. Um, so you went from, I suppose, an academic uh, environment which uh, sparked your interest in biomechanics, undergrad and then PhD. But how did you actually get into working in uh, the realms of elite-level sport? Um, back to my undergrad, really. So I... I, I Wherever I could, I always, always tried to do the, the sort of biomechanical modules. That was my big interest and, and reduced the amount of physiology that I did. Um, alongside that, I always had an interest in sport. I played sports, so I was always interested in sport. Um, I'm not going to give you the, the sub story of playing high level football and getting injured and all that, but I did, I did have a, a moment where I wanted to apply it. So I did a lot more coaching awards, coaching qualifications, and saw that there was a massive gap, even in the sort of low level athletes I was working with. So, I got lots of work experience in uh, track and field clubs, in cricket clubs, in badminton clubs, and just went and worked with coaches and tried best at them times. There wasn't sort of a, an easy availability of, of technology. It was very expensive and you couldn't really take it from the lab and put it into the applied setting. So biomechanics has always been, always been the passion, um, but genuinely to work with, obviously to, to work with coaches and athletes, yeah. that's always been the, the driver. And how, how, how long have you actually been working in athletics now then? So I started, uh, my, I'll go back to when I first started. So I started off at the role in 2004, just, just before, maybe three or four months before the, the Athens Olympics. And it, at that time, it was a, a job share role between the University of Birmingham and um, the, the English Institute of Sport that was just starting to evolve as a, a sort of a go-to place for sports science provision for, for elite athletes. And my role was a job share between the two. And it involved working across the TAS program at the university end, and then also dropped me in the sort of middle of the ocean and, and working with um, some quite, uh, looking back now, some very high level athletes, you know, Asher Hansen, Denise Lewis, Kelly Southerton, they were my sort of first athletes that I worked with and looking back now, you know, I, I was wet behind the ears, I had no idea, but I came full of enthusiasm and full of maybe thinking I could solve the world when in reality I, I knew very little, but I, I had lots of enthusiasm and I had a thirst for wanting to learn and, and improve. So they were my first um, athletes I worked with, and that was uh, it evolved after two or three years, and then became fully embedded in the, in the uh, English Institute of Sport. Um, and then, probably from 2006, 2007, was exclusively with track and field. And I've travelled all over, so different performance directors, different head coaches. I've worked across different, same sort of thing as biomechanics, but the, the organisation has evolved, and so has my role. And it's been down in London, it's been across different event groups, but. Predominantly have been involved with track and field since 2006 exclusively. Obviously across a number of events, so it's not just yeah. one event. Um, and right up in the lead up till, till 2012, which was a, an amazing experience. And then after 2012, decided to, not freshen things up really, but decided to set my own consultancy up. I still consult now into track and field um, for a set number of days a year. And then work with other professional sports as well, trying to, 
trying to sort of broaden my horizons, my skill sets, um, and working with a different client group. So what I'd like to do in, in a little while is sort of expand outside of um, athletics and the work that you're doing with other sports. But just, just to begin with and sort of uh, keep, keep things relatively simple, obviously you've spent a lot of time working with our sprint athletes, yep. um, developing an understanding of what makes, what makes people fast. Uh, and that's something that fascinates an awful lot of people. So I wonder whether you'd just spend a little bit of time just uh, giving us an insight into your thoughts as to why perhaps some of our athletes are faster than others. Yeah, obviously in terms of track and field, that's the pinnacle event, isn't it? The men's 100 metres final is, is the one that everyone looks at and, and aspires, to, uh, aspires to compete in. And, and certainly from Britain, we've, we've had a solid history, I'd say, of, of people running quick, but not necessarily running world record times. Uh, in terms of the science, the biomechanics of running fast, it, I think it's pretty clear cut that lots of people will make out the secrets to running fast and that, that, that fundamentally there isn't. There's, there's, there's key things and, um, in track and field or my sort of philosophy is, is there's critical things that athletes have to do and uh, what the best in the world do, they, they do them critical things really, really well. So the magnitudes of what they do are just exceptionally, exceptionally high. Um, now, there's different schools of thought of what makes someone run fast, but there's a combination in terms of how you generate velocity is, is step frequency, so how many times you touch the floor in a second, and obviously step length is how much, you know, what distance you get from left to right or right to left. And the combination then, the products then, gives you your velocity. Um, that sounds quite simplistic, so you just spin your legs nice and fast, touch the ground as many times as yeah. you can, and have a massive big step length, and obviously you get a huge, a huge velocity. Um, so if you look at somebody like Usain Bolt, Usain Bolt is fundamentally good or very good at what he does because relatively as a high step frequency but he also has a massive step length. Yeah. Um, what we've found, uh, some of my experience of working in the sport over a number of years is you can have athletes who have real high step frequency but they don't have the, the sort of level of step length so they're not very fast. You can have guys with massive step length but not step frequency and again they're not very fast. So it's, I always, look, I always talk about the balance and trying to find that unique sweet spot for the athlete of frequency and length. Um, so in terms of frequency and length, that's pretty clear cut. Everyone knows the combination of that. But the, 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 the crux of it for me, and we see this more and more, and there's a lot of good research coming out from America and Peter Waynard and, and um, Ralph Manis and a lot of good stuff as well, but it's how hard you hit the floor, fundamentally. And that's the big distinguishing factor. So when people hear that, they think, oh, it's easy, just stamp the floor. Um, but it's not just about that. I, I mean, I talk about it's, it's the right force in the right direction in the right time frame. Um, and I think that's the crucial one. The right time frame is a crucial one. You know, Usain Bolt are the, you know, the top, top people, top sprinters. They're on the ground for less than 90 milliseconds and they're generating huge amounts of force in that time period. So it's not only the force they generate, it's the shape of that force curve that differentiates between good and bad. Um, and the information sort of experience-wise that we've got in-house, but also the data that's been churned out by other biomechanists in, the, in uh, different countries, um, it's that... So step frequency is, is pretty much made up of one divided by the amount of time you spend on the floor and the flight time, so air time. And what's pretty standard now is that flight time doesn't differentiate between making athlete good, bad or indifferent. It's about 125 milliseconds there or thereabouts. But the number one thing that does differentiate is the amount of time these guys spend on the floor. Um, and the best in the world spend small amounts of time on the floor, which means that the frequency is nice and high. So Usain Bolt, what you, I think what you're saying then is um, he hits the ground hard, He's got huge stride length, yeah. but his stride frequency isn't 
optimum in terms of the people that you, you've worked with. Is it possible to have all three components? Yeah, no, of course it is. And the, the myth around Bolt is that Bolt can't start. And if you look at yeah. actual data, then actually for a big man, he can start. He puts himself in a good position. What he does in terms of other people in the field is he, it's almost damage limitation for Bolt. Being so big, it's a little bit more challenging to, to accelerate to them sort of levels. So the smaller guys tend to get their feet on the floor a little bit quicker, get the frequency up. But what you see is if Bolt's in the race at five metres, then he's definitely going to be in the race at 25 and he's going to be in the race at 75. So I think in, in elite male sprinting, you've got to be, after three or four metres, you've got to be in the race. And if you're not yeah. nowadays. So maximum speed in terms of track and field is it is, a, is an, almost like an aspirational, everyone, an aspirational milestone, I guess. Um, but the reality is you've got to learn how to accelerate. You've got to learn how to go from zero to as fast as you can at 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. And so it's acceleration is the, is the crucial thing. Okay. So keeping the, uh, the focus on Usain Bolt then, yeah. obviously he's the current world record holder. He's pretty much unbeatable uh, as things stand. Are you telling us that he actually does have the potential to go quicker? Yeah. And again, you've got a little Google search will, will tell you that certain people have, have sort of hypothesised what, what, what time he should have done if he didn't raise his arms and he didn't slow down He'd, you know, at the end of the world record race, 9.58. Um, you know, if you profiled that race and you looked at the profile, then you know, certainly he, sh he, he has the capabilities or did have the capabilities. I'm not sure if he does now, but he, do, he did have the capabilities to run sub 9.5. I think all the data out there would indicate that that, that isn't actually uh, an unrealistic uh, you know, expectation for someone like Bolt. Um, That's uh, sub 9.5. So, so common sense then would dictate that there has to come a point where people can't get any faster. Yeah, and it's, it's just in your view, what would you, what would you and I'm, I'm kind of putting you on the spot a little bit here, I'm conscious of that, but what, what would you, if you were put on the spot, to hazard a guess, where, where, where is the limit for the male 100 metres? You know, when I first started, when I look back 2004, 2003, I, I didn't, I, I'll be honest, I didn't ever think someone could run 9.58. Um, yeah. So as a, as a biomechanist, I always look at, I look at the time, but then I break it down and say, right, actually, if you want to run quicker, what have you got to do? So someone has got to eventually has got to in order to run sub 958 has got to do something with their frequency or their length. Well, we know step length pretty much when you sort of normalise it out for, for the actual leg length. It isn't it's not the distinguishing factor between someone whose ability to run fast or or very fast. Yeah. It's actually the frequency, and the number one driver of frequency is, is ground time. So we've got to work out, and I think that's where embracing different sciences, you know, strength conditioning. Um, neuromuscular physiology, all that type of stuff, I still think it's an untapped resource. And I know Franz Bosch is doing a lot of stuff in that area, which I think is, at the moment, we've not really got a fundamental understanding of it, but I think that's a real key area that um, the, the guys have got to apply more force in a shorter ground time, which means the frequency is kept. Now, in order, that sounds really easy, but in order to do that, you've got to be a, a, a physical specimen, I guess, to do that. So it's Okay, so... Obviously, you mentioned that uh, you work within UK Athletics. I mean, we're focused just... Uh, to this point on 100 meter sprinting but clearly you work across a number of other disciplines there so uh, if we extend the distance then that our athletes are covering and uh, let's say we go to middle distance athletes 1500 meter runners um, does the approach that you as a biomechanist take change at all are you looking for different cues or do you use are you using different metrics or is it just a, just a different recipe with this with the same three parameters that you um, use yeah fundamentally it's the same three parameters and i've learned over time by doing this uh, in the applied world that fundamentally there's the specific things that these guys and these athletes do so i always start off at the performance and 
it, there's lots of buzzwords around it, but what it takes to win, I look at the event and say, right, what, what does the event require you to do? And then, so it, that might be a time, might be a distance, might be a height, and work backwards and say, okay, what, what do you have to do in order to run that time or, or to jump that height? Um, and it comes down to, if it's a running event, it will come down to how much time you spend on the floor and what, you, what force you can apply in that contact time. So for obviously for an 800 meter runner, the ground time is going to be slightly longer compared to a 100 meter runner. But essentially it's still the ability, you can only impart force when you're on the floor. And it's how efficient your body is at applying that force on the floor. So if you take the example of an endurance runner, you know, Mo Farah you know, that would be a good example. He's extremely efficient, but if you look at his profiles of step length, step frequency, and his actual velocity, what he's very good at is keeping a high step frequency, relatively, and a, and a good step length, so his velocity is good. Other guys in the field, when it comes to the last burn, you know, the last lap chase that people um, historically now have become sort of a benchmark for Mo Farah's running, not only is he very good up to that point, but you know, clearly he can run the, the, the distances before that and, and he's very efficient at doing that. But the last lap is the driver, really. Yeah. No one else can go to them speeds. And the fundamental reason, again, is that he keeps his step length, but his frequency is maintained or increased. And that's why it just looks effortless. But he specifically trains that area and they've done... You know, I know, um, not so much with me, but the programme and, and the coaching structure around them have done lots of work on, yeah, you need to run the last lap fast, but how? So they've looked at the combinations of frequency and length and they've done lots of drills in it. And, and that stuff takes time, huge yeah. amounts of time yeah. to get to that. So keeping, keeping uh, with UK athletics then, um, after the London Olympics, uh, one of our gold medalists, Jessica Ennis-Hill, uh, took a period of time out, um, she had a baby, um, got married, and she's come back obviously particularly strong in the, in the World Championships this year, but that took time. Yep. I'm just interested to know if during the period of time when she came back to athletics, between that point and the point at which she won the World Championships then, were you, would you see huge changes in any of those three key variables uh, in yeah, her? Yeah, we saw, like obviously, working with Jessica since sort of 2006, 2007, we've got a good profile, a sort of training profile, biomechanical profile across all the events of what she, how she does it, how she puts it together. So how she puts her heptathlon score together. So we're looking that way that we've got good baseline information that we know year to year, November to November comparison or January to January, we know pretty much what she should look like um, and also what the aspiration, the target is. Now, interestingly, her profiles, you know, without revealing too much, but her profiles, you know, she's changed. Her body's changed physiologically. You know, obviously, the, the, the pregnancy has obviously had some changes to her body. So it was really revealing that the, the, the sort of athlete and the baselines we had going pre-2012 to what we've got after the birth, it's been completely different. But it's fundamentally the same. She's just putting it together differently. So in terms of velocity, there's a different type of... The ground time is slightly different. There's a different type of kinematics in terms of how she's hitting the ground. And now you could say she's been, has she learned that or is it just a, an inherent ability or a gift? It's probably a combination of the two, but I wouldn't say fundamentally she's done masses amount differently or runs massive differently. Um, it's just there's a, a different type of, um, the, the underpinning physical qualities are slightly different, which has meant her, her actual functional stuff is slightly different as well. But it's, it, fundamentally for me as a, as a scientist, but, excuse me, a biomechanist, it's about understanding that unique puzzle that the athlete is. So the puzzle that we had to begin with was, okay, very successful into 2012. The puzzle we inherit now, slightly different. We've got to manage the loads, the volumes, the intensities, um, because the body is putting forces and loads through the body. That's, it's never done in that order and that sequence before. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, been a, it's been a massively uh, interesting journey. 
and one which the coach has done a great job in, in managing not only expectation, but managing sort of incremental steps. But when you've got no reference point, it's really difficult. And your only reference point for the athlete is, well, I didn't do that in 2012. I didn't do that. I know that isn't good enough. And it's trying to reset the focus of, yes, that, that was 2012. That was you pre, pre-Reggie. That was you pre-Baby. Now this is you as an athlete. Um, the, new, the new Jessica Ennis Hill, if you like. And I'm guessing with, with any of these athletes, because of who they are, you know, they are the, the best in the world at what they do. You, there is no generic reference point. The only reference point you can get is they themselves as an athlete. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, again, something you've just got to come back to and just be realistic and honest about. So when you get asked, I, we didn't actually know what she'd come back with and what, she, what she'd lose, what she'd gain. Now, in, in fact, what she ended up doing is coming back an incredible nick. Physically yeah. came back really, really good. And then it was just a case of incremental steps. Just, okay, do a little bit more, do a little bit more. And we measured along the way that said, okay, um, you know, in the technical events, there's certain things that we wanted to see technically. Um, and when we didn't see that, we were actually trying to work out, well, why wouldn't she be able to do that? Trying to work out the underpinning reasons. And some of that would just be a, a physicality issue. Some of it, just the fact she hasn't done much of it for a long, long period of time. So it was, a, it, was a, it was sometimes felt like spinning plates. Yeah. Certain things would do really well and then other events wouldn't do well. But I think credit to her really, she, she obviously had the drive, the passion, the belief that she could do it. Um, the journey, I guess, when we started to where we went to, no one kind of knew which, which way it'd go. Um, but it's been a fascinating journey, massive learning experience for me as a scientist to see almost two athletes in one. It's been yeah. Yeah, really interesting. So, I mean, obviously you've been involved in, you know, as, a, as a practicing biomechanist for over 10 years now. Uh, and you mentioned there about some of the athletes you've worked with, some of the coaches that you've worked with. Uh, I'm guessing that possibly over the last 10, 12 years, you've seen a change in the attitude of these people towards the value of biomechanics. Would that be true? Yeah, without a doubt. I think um, I've been privileged over the years, certainly in track and field, to work with some, some you know, world-renowned coaches um, and coaches who've coached at the very highest level, Olympic world medalist, um, and not just done it once, done it numerous times. Um, so I've always tried wherever I can to learn from them coaches. Now certain guys will, will embrace science and be all over science, whether it be physiology, biomechanics or whatever it is, strength condition. Other guys are very reserved and don't. Um, and I, don't, I used to think and take it very personally um, that they didn't want to use me. Um, but if I look back and experiences of, I think I've probably evolved as a practitioner as well, massively. Yeah. I used to think it was, a, it was appropriate and right uh, and also world leading to give the coaches a massive big PhD thick full of biomechanical analysis, which I'd spent maybe five, six, seven days doing, sat in a dark room, digitising stick figure diagrams, producing all these reports, and wrongly gave it to the coach and said, well, there's the report, you, you've got to know what to do with it. So I'd done my job, passed the book almost. Yeah. And reality tells you, you know, over experience and doing it, that these athletes didn't get any better. Now I can just blame the coach, that's really easy. The coach, the coach put together a poor plan or didn't embrace science. When, when really, it's, um, it's kind of not as simple as that. It's, I thought I'd done my job, but I hadn't done it to the best of my ability. Um, so it's putting it in a language which the coach understands, making sure you give it the right information at the right time. And that probably goes back to the original point of, sometimes less is more. We can get into this world of paralysis by analysis sometimes, and it's a real fine act. And I guess that comes down to your, the relationship you've got with the coach. And I probably downplayed that a little bit at the beginning. The relationship is fundamental. Without a good relationship, you've, you pretty much struggle to do anything, even if you're the best biomechanist in the world. And the other, the other bit I've learned a lot of is, is trust. They've got to absolutely 100% trust you. Um, and that's clear, you know, it, the best um, biomechanical support I've provided with coaches and athletes 
I've probably been with the most challenging coaches who've made me work really, really hard and the most challenging, demanding athletes. But there's a 100% there's trust and respect mutually as well. So when they look at me middle of the Olympic Games and say, what do I do? And you don't panic, you look around and say, got to go back two, two, two shoes in the long jump, for example. They know it's non-negotiable. It's a, that's what he's telling me to do. And they trust you. We've been there before and we've done it. They go back two shoes and, and hopefully... And all of these key elements, though, are not things that happen overnight. You know, this is something that evolves from a relationship that's, that's developed over a number of years. Yeah, and, you know, the phrase I use, you've got to spend some time in their world for them to spend a bit of time in your world. So I think um, I hear it all the time, some, you know, some of the, the, the sort of less experienced support staff, sports science staff, and this is not a sort of a, uh, a dig at anyone in particular, but they always, uh, the coach doesn't embrace me or the coach won't buy into what I'm doing and the coach is this, the coach that. And, and sometimes when you say to them, well, have you been down onto the track? Have you talked to the coach? Have you, have you been and took him for a coffee? Have you spent a bit of time with him or just sat and watched? Yeah. And I, look, I, think, I really do think that my, although it wasn't planned, structured, coordinated, my sort of um, development early days was I spent hours and hours every week watching um, because there was no real expectation to, to deliver because I, I went in, luckily, you know, luckily, fortunately for me, at the, right at the end of an Olympic cycle. So it was three or four months. I've probably done more damage than doing good. So I spent lots of time chatting to coaches, sitting, having a cup of coffee, having, yeah. you know, and that, that time is just precious and I don't think enough we do that enough. I think there's a, there's a, there's a need and there's a desire to want to help people. And sometimes that, that can be overzealous and you don't actually yeah. think, well, what am I doing? Am I actually adding value here or am I actually just adding information? And I call it noise and stuff and we do lots of that at the moment. I think there's a, yeah. my bugbear is, you know, we, do, we, we measure stuff and we add lots of noise to the programme. I think my remit now as an applied biomechanist should be about reducing that noise, reducing the amount of stuff, but the information we present is absolutely critical for that performance. So. And here's potentially a problem then, because obviously technology is evolving and developing, uh, and we're, with, a, with a lot of new technologies, we're actually creating a situation where, for example, one with the training camps, you'll go and attend with the athletes, spend a lot of time with them and the coaches, and you'll build these important relationships that you're talking about. Yep. But we're moving to an age where perhaps you don't need to be there, and the technologies can be operated remotely, and information mm. uh, sent back to wherever you're based. Yep. Um, which is great, but could that potentially be something that could lead to an issue in terms of that trust and relationship? Possibly. Like, I think the reality is that's the way it's going. I think, you know, even in uh, uh, British Athletics, we've got multiple training camps or multiple um, athletes and athlete coach pairings all around the world. You know, America, we've got even, yeah. you know, some in Sheffield, some in London, some in Manchester, and they're based all over. So you can't cover every session with every athlete at every, every opportunity. So I think the way the technology is available, the, the amount of free available stuff in terms of technology, it's going to come to that case where, yes, these guys are going to generate numbers and they're going to generate information. I, for me, it comes down to like what you do with that information. And I think that's yeah. the important thing. You've got to measure the right stuff. You've got to measure the right things. So um, and once you do that, it, it's again, the information in the wrong hands can be equally as damaging. Yeah. So it's come down to the interpretation of. So, my interpretation of a, of a speed trace, for instance, a LAVEG speed profile that gives you instantaneous velocity of a sprinter, if I interpret that compared to someone else who maybe not their area of expertise, we could get two different um, outcomes of it or suggestions to the coach. So I think that's the only, the, the only challenge, the only dilemma. But you, again, if, you, if, if you're measuring the right things in, the, in that event and the, the specifics of that event and you know that they correlate well to, to running fast, jumping high, 
uh, throwing further, then I think you've got some, you've got a certain amount of um, certainty that that's, that number's important. Um, so, we're focused there very much on, I mean, I, you know, me being a, a physiologist who's worked predominantly in team sports would possibly inappropriately accuse you of a bit of a cop-out in that you're interested in people getting from A to B pretty much in a straight line yeah. uh, without a great deal of extraneous noise. Yeah. So I do know that you've spent a couple of years uh, working in Premier League soccer. Um, I'd be interested about your, your thoughts about soccer and about how the kind of general principles that you use to underpin your work in athletics can potentially be applied in, in, in that notoriously noisy environment. Yeah, I'd, I worked, obviously I had three, three and a half years uh, doing some, some consultancy in, in football. Um, and I, if I'm honest, like, th there was components of it that I was, I was totally unaware of. Like, I, I wasn't really aware of the locomotive data that came from the games, uh, you know, the pro zone type systems. And I also wasn't really aware of some of the technologies of catapult that the players used in training. So I think in terms of what they measure, in terms of volumes, intensities, locomotion, they're very good at collecting data. Uh, I think what, uh, what I'd use from my analogy from track and field is we maybe five, six years ago got into that stage of, of generating lots and lots of numbers, lots of stuff, but didn't really know which stuff made a difference. And I'd say that would be my only comment on football is there's, there's clearly an abundance of information. But if you could just tighten that down and sort of funnel it in and say, well, actually, of all this information, there's only two or three that really, really distinguish between good and bad, mate, you know, in terms of the player, or it increases their probability of getting hurt. I think that's the key thing. It's obviously a performance element, but also a, can, these, yeah. can you get your best players in the, on, the, on Saturday more regularly than, than most? So, yeah, information in, in soccer isn't really the limit factor. You know, there's lots yeah. of numbers. I think tying it down, they've got to, got to try and work out what's important and what isn't, and that's sort of filtering that type of um, redundant information, I guess. So, I mean, you, you know, three years, three and a half years uh, in Premier League soccer, and everybody might, every, you know, anybody listening to this might assume that uh, Premier League soccer clubs all engage the services of a biomechanist, which you and I both know isn't the mm. case. But what, what is it that the biomechanist brings to uh, the interdisciplinary team uh, within Premier, Premier League soccer? Good question. Um, I guess when I went into the, the soccer club that I was working at in the Premier League, um, it was a remit of working both uh, upskilling the practitioners, so the support staff as well, in areas of, of um, sort of importance, what I've been doing in track and field. So some of that was uh, some strength diagnostics, so I'm trying to get yep. some information on what they do in the gym. And I think there's always that got to be that logical link of what you do in the gym and what you do out in the grass. You've got to try and paint the picture of how, that, how the two fit and complement each other. So in terms of the underpinning physical qualities that a player has, and we'll talk about that unique fingerprint of what does the player actually possess? What are the, what are the strength qualities? And obviously the strength and conditioning guys know a lot more about that than me, but I gave that objectivity that was an actual number that said, okay, over a period of time, that number's either getting better or it's getting worse, and this is the squad average. Now, if I look back when I first went in, put the force plate on the floor, and the players looked at it like it was just a piece of metal in the, in the corner of the gym, I think out of a squad, maybe one or two went on it, and of the one or two went on it, maybe one jumped properly and was interested, engaged. And, yeah. um, and again, you know, I guess that, as a practitioner going in to help a club, that's probably over, hang on a minute, why? Because if I think about track and field, that is an inherent piece of kit which the athletes know is important because it informs their training. I guess it was just a different piece of information that these players hadn't had before. Um, so yeah, if I take that day one, 
uh, force plate in the gym, very few used it, and then it's probably taken time. And the culture as well, I think, is really important. The culture of the, the head coach, the staff, the, the other support staff as well, making sure the culture is there for the players to embrace that and understand the importance of it to inform other, other, what peop other people do. So, and then maybe three years or two, three years it's taken now, fully embedded with what the players do. There's a, there's a there's sort of thought of thirst and a drive to put that information out. The standards across the group, there's a bit more competitiveness. And I guess they probably see the relevance of that piece of metal on the floor and how it can potentially help them. Um, perform on a Saturday. So, would the biomechanist have a role? And obviously, one thing that clearly differentiates team sports in general from some of the uh, the linear sports that are involved in athletics is the fact that people have to change direction. Yep. They have to decelerate and then reapply force in in a, in a different plane. Um, could biomechanists make a a meaningful contribution towards helping players in that respect? Yeah, I guess that was one area that I was surprised about is that, um, so obviously track and field context, the coaches coach movement fundamentally every day, every session. They're talking about key positions to hit, what to do with the ankle, what to do with the knee, what to do with the hip, how much you need to step, step distance, step frequency. All, all this stuff is just general um, everyday conversations within training so that the athletes are coached about movement, so that yeah. the or the coach or the scientist sees the movement, describes what they see, and, and instructs the, the athlete to do something different. In football, I don't think there's any, for me, that, that would be one area I think they could um, potentially benefit from actually coaching movement. Now, I understand that the, the sort of football argument would be there's no time, and you, know, you only have a certain shot window with these athletes, these players here, sort of either as a warm up 20 minutes pre session, and they spend predominantly the amount of time on the grass. But I do think you can do small stuff. And as long as you're focused on the right areas, I do think you can, um, you can do some good work. So going back to change of direction, you know, it, it, I, I guess to change direction, you've got to do a certain, you've got to do critical things. Yeah. And then it's a case of, right, that's your benchmark, that's your framework you're looking at. So what do you expect to see? What does your player do? What's good, what's bad, what's indifferent, and how can you help that player? So is it a case of they're technically just not good? There's no awareness, so it might just be show them a video. How are you doing it? I want you to get into these positions. Or is there an underpinning physical quality that's not there, that's allowing them to do it? You know, it could be eccentric strength, could be um, putting the body in the wrong position, might affect them strength quality. So I, I guess it's the same premise. Um, you, you've got what you're trying to improve and you can use various different tools and measurement yeah. systems to identify the bits that are limiting in that, in that movement. So we'll talk a little bit there about, uh, obviously about team sports. Uh, we've talked about um, Clearly, there is an awful lot of value taken in the, in the linear sport, particularly in athletics from biomechanics. Um, we're sat here in December 2015. What does the next few years hold for sports biomechanics going forward then? What do you think will be the, uh, the, the next big thing in sports biomechanics? The next big thing. Um, in terms of generating information now, I don't think uh, yeah, you, you can get some uh, computer animation stuff that, you know, visualizing what people do I think and the the time frame from what they do and getting that information is obviously is getting shorter and shorter yeah. in terms of generating actual numbers from a sports biomechanics point of view I think we, we can generate the numbers now it's what you do with it so one of my big pushes is trying to not have information in isolation so have information that is synchronized together so it's bringing in information on step length step frequency what the athlete does visually high-speed camera speak on catapult information and what I'd like to see, sort of the big aspiration and big driver for me, is on one timeline, you look at interactions of, so you drag a little timeline that you can see the athlete moves forward, you look at what it, the force does, you look at what the speed's doing, you look at inertial sensors, accelerometry, 
and you've got this global picture of what the athlete's doing, but it's interactions, it's not, well, acceleration is saying that, or set length saying that, or video saying that. So would that be, I mean, obviously you're talking about there about some effectively databasing uh, and then visualization uh, of that data. Yeah. Um, but the interpretation of what you're seeing would clearly still be down to the, uh, the expert practitioner, or do you think that you could actually inbuild algorithms that will auto analyze these Yeah, this I, data? I mean, that would be brilliant for a biomechanist because we spend probably a small component of our time with, track, with, with, with the athlete or the player, and then a, lo a lot longer crunching, processing, yeah. putting into databases, doing analysis and interpretation. So, I mean, the aspiration would be brilliant if that could be automated yeah. um, and have some, uh, some reference points built into it, algorithms that clearly tell you when it's good, bad, and different, and also tell you what to do if that isn't good, bad, or indifferent. Yeah. So, yeah, that, is that ever going to ha happen? I'm not 100% certain. I think the technology's getting very good. Um, I just think the, the software and the hardware's got to marry up, and we've got to get to a stage where some of the commercially available products can be ex raw data exported and brought in into sort of a bespoke package that allows you to yeah. multiple levels of, of information. Great stuff. Um, I've just got one more question that I'd uh, like to ask, and hopefully there'll be one or two either younger practitioners or people that are just coming at the end of their uh, academic qualifications uh, that might have an interest in working as a sports biomechanist. Is there any, in a nutshell, any, kind of, any good solid advice that you could give to those people uh, to give them the best possible chance of entering the profession? Yeah, it, there is, yeah. Uh, experience is the number one for me. Uh, and I think there's, if you look at, uh, we obviously get, when we um, put jobs out, uh, job advertisements, we get lots of applications of, of, uh, of students applying for jobs. And, they, and they're obviously varying degrees. They've got undergraduate, they've got masters, and some have got PhDs. And what's very clear when you get these guys in to be interviewed is the ones that stand out are the ones, if they want to work in applied sport, have worked with coaches and athletes. And they stand out a mile. That experience is absolutely fundamental because they appreciate that it's not just about, from a biomechanical point of view, making sure the guy is a robot. They're not robots. They understand that you can have a great idea, you can have the greatest information, but if you can't communicate that to the, to the, uh, the coach and the athlete. And I, I, I come back to three things, really. So it's knowledge and understanding of the sport and the event, and I think that comes by doing and spending time. Clearly, you've got to have knowledge and understanding of, of biomechanics. There's a, there's a huge component in terms of skill of delivery, and that takes time. Like, I look back at some of the sessions I did when I was first starting, and I cringe at some of the things I did. <laughs> but I did them in, with the well in, you know, an intention that I was trying to do the right thing. So it's a skill of delivery, it's saying the right words at the right time, picking up that relationship that we talked about. And I think the last one that is really difficult to measure is, um, is personal qualities. Fundamentally, you've got to engage people and you've got to get on with people. Now, um, I think the balance there is, I always talk about this, professional and personal. Personally, you might not get on with someone, but if they've got the best athlete in the programme, you've got to get on with them professionally and they've got to hopefully see value in what you do. So I think you don't have to get on with them personally, you can, but you should be able to have a professional conversation yeah. and professional challenge and com, you know, arguments, conversations. But, so they're the three things that are really important. But without doubt, it's gaining experience, not just if you want to be a biomechanist in track and field, not just track and field, you know, volleyball, cricket. And I think the danger then is that you've got, well, it's not a danger, you've got a really sort of a, a good flavour of different sports, different um, coaches, different athletes. Um, and you just bring a unique skill set. And I think that's the, that's the thing. When you sit in an interview, you want to see someone stand out and you want to make them go, well, we can't not appoint that athlete. We can't not appoint that person because yeah. of all the things that they bring. Brilliant. Great advice. 
Thanks very much, Paul. No problem. Do appreciate you uh, giving up some of your valuable time, and uh, I wish you all the very best. Thanks very much. Cheers. Thank you. 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 Cheers. Thank you.